Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome everyone to research seminar at GI um, by Dr. Peter Layton uh, to give us a talk on the South China Sea, which has increasingly become um, explosive in Asia Pacific. Um, Peter is a visiting fellow at GI. He got his uh, PhD from the University of New South Wales. And he has taught um, at the Eisenhower College at National Defense University in Washington, D.C. And he also got 35, over 35 years experience with the uh, Australian Defense Force. He was awarded a fellowship to the European University Institute in Italy for his academic work. And he was awarded the U.S. Secretary of Defense's Exceptional Public Service Medal for um, his work at the Pentagon. Over the years, he has been writing extensively on issues like uh, grand strategy, security, policy, and defense acquisitions. So I think his expertise and experience um, makes, him, makes him a very ideal candidate for a talk like this. Um, and his talk today is titled, uh, is, this, is this our best course to steer? A rules-based order with anchor in the South China Sea. So, uh, without much ado, I'll leave it to you, Peter. Thank you very much, Stephen. So, as, St as Stephen said, we'll be principally talking about a rules-based order. That was a nice um, Australian Financial Review article that appeared a few weeks ago talking about the uh, Defence White Paper that was just released. The rules-based order, of course, is a very fashionable term at the uh, present time. Everyone talks about it, um, not, sort of not just around Australia, but certainly amongst um, American allies everywhere. You see the, uh, the Japanese... Prime Minister talks about it, um, the UK Prime Minister talks about it, etc. A rules-based order has certain attractions, let's say. However, I'm not so sure about a rules-based order, and so what I'd like to do during this talk is have a quick discussion about, about what a rules-based order is. I'd like to then look at, at the South China Sea case, because as uh, the Secretary of uh, Defence says there or something, it's really all about a rules-based order, and for those that can read that particular paragraph there, what he actually says is it's all about a rules-based a rules -based order as concerns China in the South China Sea. So we'll talk about China the rules uh, and the application of the rules-based order in the, South, in the South China Sea and then finish off with um, another option that we, that we could use rather than a uh, rules-based order. So three parts, very simple. What is a rules-based order? Now, the word order, of course, in international relations theory tends to be a, uh, a contested term, so I'm just using it in its, in its fairly narrow sense as being that uh, sovereign states interact with each other, and as uh, Henry Bull sort of pointed out, that uh, order is a social activity that is structured in certain ways according to particular social rules. So we're talking about the interaction between states. So, if, sort of, if you like, a, uh, a micro-understanding of the word international order. I've got up there a, a quote from, uh, from Eikenberry that I quite like, that, that international order concerns settled rules and, and arrangements that guide relations between states. Now the word of course settled does not necessarily mean fixed, peaceful or even stable. Um, but, but, they are the, uh, if, but, but they are the rules and arrangements that, that uh, states use as their common political space the space within which they address problems and issues of concern. The important point that I would like to stress, I suppose, is that um, we, often, we often sort of uh, use this word stability, and, it, and international order is often sort of 
um, tied up with the, the idea of a stable international order. But international order, as we know, is subject to change all the time. It's in a, a permanent state of flux. So in that case, um, I quite like Jean-Marc Kotko's calling it socialised instability. It's, if you like, a political space that uh, accommodates change. It's able to uh, accommodate change, open to it, and can withstand it. It is, if you like, change purposefully managed. That doesn't mean, of course, you know, that states don't have to abide by the order. They can change it as well. It's that common, po that common political space they can use. Now, what particular kind of order they use um, does depend a lot on the uh, context, naturally, in having two structural elements, the form and the uh, content. And we'll just focus down now a bit on a rules-based order in itself. So the form, obviously with a rules-based order, that a cooperative order, not a, con a, a conflictual order, but a cooperative order, where states agree um, to certain actions and that their actions will be in accordance with a agreed rules. They agree amongst themselves certain particular rules. The advantage of this, of course, is that uh, the external environment can be more controlled. Um, a rules-based order can be a tool of political control between states shaping and restricting the power and the policy options of the other states. Now, agreeing to the rules, because it's a cooperative order, generally means being involved in the development of the rules. And if states are involved in the development of the rules, then that, then that, makes the, then that gives the rules a certain sense of legitimacy. But it's a cooperative order. The advantages of this, I suppose, of a rules-based order, when we, when we look around the world and the 200 different states, all with different governmental systems, it is, in theory at least, independent of the uh, type of states. The uh, concept in itself does not necessarily privilege a particular form of uh, government. That obviously appeals um, to authoritarian states because democratic states have a sort of a reputation for meddling sometimes in the internal affairs of countries. So a rules-based order, by definition, sounds like an order that everybody can be a, a part of. That's important, of course, in the global marketplace, and in particular uh, that we all agree to a certain rule so that economic uh, interaction and, uh, and financial exchanges can take place. We'll pick up that a little bit later. Talking about change, I quite like uh, Chris Roy Smith's term of, of institutionally governed change. So rules-based order, as we said before, I suppose, is that it is what, it is what states agree to. So... As the rules-based order changes, as the world changes, as states both want change or they try and, and, stop, and uh, stop change, the rules have to alter. Now, states hold differing opinions about the rules, so change tends to be complicated, torturous, sluggish. It doesn't necessarily help change. Uh, rules-based order can suffer from a fair bit of e-inertia. So, if you like, we're making rules for the future based upon what's happened in the past. Critics, of course, always focus upon that, uh, the statement, who makes the rules? And implicit in that is a criticism that the rules are generally, are generally made by the most powerful states in the international system. And they alter the rules and make them to suit themselves. And there's undoubtedly a certain amount of truth in that. And developing states, of course, always complain that they are obliged to work by a set of rules that they haven't been involved in the formulation of, and they don't necessarily, A, agree with, but on the other hand, for a whole pile of very good reasons, they feel they should follow. There's sort of pros and cons there. And the argument of, about who, who makes the rules is a fairly common one. That's a quick overview of the form. 
There's also the uh, content here. Said uh, rules-based audit is what states are you agree to. We'd obviously like it to be coherent, clear, universal, and generalizable, as in it uh, doesn't uh, it uh, doesn't give any specific favours to to uh, to any certain group, but uh, but uh, rather is uh, fair across everybody. That's fine as far as a generic sort of rules-based order, but in the real world, the content depends upon what states want, naturally. It's, it's directly uh, related to the objectives that states, that states wish the order to have. And various states and various people have a different idea about what states should in fact be. So while everyone can maybe likes the idea of a rules-based order, when you actually get down to the content, there's a great, di great diversity of views. There's just a few here. 2014 Clinton, when, when uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State and she was talking about the uh, pivot uh, to, to Asia and she was talking about the international order, the rebalance to, uh, to the Pacific was supposed to develop, was there were two parts, manage the peaceful rise of China and promote universal norms and values. So two very distinct functions, if you like, of the rules-based order that Hillary Clinton envisaged at that particular time. A year later, when uh, President Obama signed off on the American national security strategy, that had slightly increased a little bit, it was now promoting global security and prosperity. So that economic factor was, was uh, now bought, bought in here. But again, uh, the dignity and human rights of all peoples, which many people would sort of translate as a code for democratic government. Both of those are fairly broad. We start off talking about the Australian Defence White Paper, Australia being a middle power, has a much less expansive view of international order. The rules-based order, as is defined in the Defence White Paper, and I you know, caution drawing too much from that because it is the Defence White Paper, it's not the Foreign Affairs White Paper, it's, it's a particular government department's view. It may not necessarily be everybody's view, but it is signed off by the government. You'll see that the Defence White Paper is the peaceful resolution of disputes, so we should settle things without military action, and secondly, trade facilitation, and that includes obviously the free the free trade I, I agreements, but also the safe passage of the commercial goods through the global commons, which has some resonance about the South China Sea, as we'll talk about shortly. So you can see the Australian viewpoint is much narrower. Um, the Japanese viewpoint, which I haven't got there, is uh, Prime Minister Abe talks about rules-based order quite a lot. But he doesn't, he's, it's very hard to find him making a statement tying it to security issues. It's usually tied to prosperity issues. And, and his view is that economic prosperity is tied to a rules-based order, and that's where rules work in the economic sphere. So he's being quite specific about, about it as well. But again, quite different to the American viewpoint, and somewhat different to the Australian one as well. I can be, as, as a, got a good academic, um, I can be bear in mind as a, as a, as a liberal thinker, he's, he's been relatively involved in, uh, in the pushing ideas of the liberal order and trying to uh, define it, and certainly has a lot of friends in the, uh, in the present Obama administration. Uh, and he sees that the trade and ideas flow freely across borders, inclusive and non-discriminatory. Again, a fairly idealistic form. Chris Rice-Smith takes a completely different view and has a, a cosmopolitan international order focused upon individuals rather than states, looking at international public goods, international human rights, global distributive justice. You can see from those five or six examples there that their content is all quite different. So it depends on what... It's the old story about Michael Cox, you know, sort of a theory is for something and serves a particular purpose. Well, this is, this is as well. An oddity about the current rules-based order, as at least states think about it, 
is that it includes balancing. The idea here is that um, rules are rules, but at times they need to be enforced. And they're enforced using balancing, obviously involves, from international relations point of view, involves uh, the threat of violence or the use of violence to enforce the rules. There seems to me an incoherency here that you're talking about a cooperative order and yet you have a subset of it is talking about the use or the threat of armed military force. If you like, you're forcing people to cooperate, and there seems a bit of a, an unresolved conflict there. Let's quick run through bomb and content. We'll now move on and talk about the South China Sea and how China has been part of the rules-based order and having fun in the South China Sea. But we'll just do a quick sort of revision about what's sort of going on in the, from a current affairs viewpoint, first of all. Right, so what we're, what we're uh, talking about is uh, a bunch of disputed islands and disputed sea. This is a complicated diagram, but if you look at the, at the red line, that's China's nine-dash line, although here they've used a lot more than their nine-dashes, of course, which covers about between 80 and 90% of, of the South China Sea. So China makes some fairly uh, expansive claims. These green dots are islands which are disputed, um, and, the, and the blue lines are the exclusive economic zones claimed by various, by various countries. So you can see the South China Sea is a busy place anyway. There's only a bit in the middle um, that countries don't sort of claim as under some particular ruling now. The exclusive economic zone was a, was a particular ruling that, that uh, came out of, of the uh, United Nations law of the sea. Now, there's a whole pile of islands there and a whole pile of things. It's, it's more simply divided up into the Paracel Islands in the north, Scarborough Shoals over there by the Philippines, and these are the Spratly Islands. So there's really two major groups of islands and one off by itself, to just, to, just, ju just to sort of try and simplify it. Um, all those islands and, the, and most of that sea space is quite deep, quite deep water, about 1,000 metres or more, which means the islands are well off China's continental shelf. Um, they're also a fair distance from Hainan Island. Um, the, uh, the Paracel Islands is about 300 kilometres, the uh, Scarborough Shoal about 700 kilometres, and the Spratlys are about 1,000 kilometres. So, you know, when you get down to here, you're, you're a long way from, obviously, from mainland China, but you're a lot closer to, to other countries. Now, the Nine Dash Line uh, was first claimed by the Kuomintang uh, government in 1947. So it's just after World War II that the, the first nine-dash line was, uh, was widely published, let's say. Um, that's been revised a little bit since. Definitive statement of it um, is the notes verbalised to, uh, to the UN Secretary in, uh, in, in May 2009. Even so, there's a bit of uncertainty about exactly where the nine-dash line is and, and uh, what's, in, what's included in it. Just talk about ancient history. Um, of course, China and, uh, China and North Vietnam fought a, a, a one-day conflict and uh, China captured the Paracel Islands from the, uh, Viet from the Vietnamese. Um, there were 58 killed, one corvette sunk, a couple of frigates damaged. It was a nice little short sort of sharp action. That was back in 1974. And then back in 1982, there was, there was a, little, a similarly uh, short, sharp one-day action um, where China fought uh, the now united Vietnam and took over control of uh, Johnson's South Reef. There were 70 killed and three landing ships lost. These are quite um, impressive little sort of actions. Now, but they've, at the time, nobody cared that much because China, if you like, was on the west side and the Soviets were the, were the principal issue and Vietnam was not well thought of either in the wake of the Vietnam War. Since that time, 
and in and in the 1990s there were various spats and disputes, but things just dribbled just dribbled along. It wasn't until about 2009 that China gave up that famous uh, decade-long charm offensive and became a a lot more assertive. So we're really talking about post 2009. So what's been happening up there? Now that's Woody Island in the uh, Paracels, relatively close to Hainan Island, only a few hundred kilometres away. Can't quite see it there in the slide. However, um, you, you can obviously see there's a military base, large airfield, there's, there's surface air missiles there now, anti-ship missiles installed, fighter aircraft deployed, there's all sorts of things going on. The island's now considerably larger than it, uh, it uh, used to be. Um, to sort of, I suppose, as a comment about all, all the signals, the signalling that goes on up here, you can't quite see it, but up there there's a bunch of uh, black objects that are parked on the sand. This is the picture where, for some reason, the surface to missile system was parked on the sand so that the satellite flying overhead could get a clear shot and the pictures be given to the Fox News network so that they could announce that they found these uh, Chinese surface to missile systems uh, during the middle of the Sunnylands uh, America ASEAN conference earlier this year. It was a clear, a clear signal, if you like. The uh, timing was impeccable. That's at uh, to Woody Island. Over on the Scarborough Shoals there, which is where the Philippines are mainly in, in uh, dispute, China has claimed ownership, erected a barrier to stop Philippine fishing boats entering it and to maintain Coast Guard and paramilitary ships there on guard, hoping to stop people, uh, the uh, Philippines, accessing the uh, Scarborough Shoals. Down here on these couple of dots here, uh, the, down in the Spratleys, is the Mischief Reef and a fire and a fiery reef, which of course is where all the big infrastructure developments have been going on. Mischief Reef has been has been or is being enlarged dramatically, and uh, the, and they're building large airfields, port facilities, radar systems, military barracks, lighthouses, all of those all of those sort of good things. What were once, if you like, almost just just a rock jutting out of the ocean, are now considerably larger. And that was some pictures taken from uh, some, some uh, test flights by, by some commercial aircraft, but chartered for the day by the Chinese government, um, that did some, some uh, test runs into the, uh, the brand new 10,000 foot runway at Tafari Cross Reef. So China's <coughs> expanded quite a bit, if you like, in the South China Sea. That's the current, that's the current state of the play. Of course, well, we'll probably talk about it later, but there's probably a bit more state, state of the play in six weeks' time. However, let's have a talk about, let's return back to, to the rules-based order and leave current affairs alone for a second. Now, um, gen generally speaking, now while China has made what, what, what could be interpreted as t a, uh, territorial grabs in the South, in the South China Sea and, and a lot of expansionism going on, um, China has been basically playing by the rules, if you like, at least the rules it thinks are pertinent and are appropriate to this to this particular situation. So the Chinese approach has been um, structured and informed by the idea of the rules-based order. It's just that that, that, that only particular order, uh, rules that China AE agrees with. Um, and a lot has been made of the fact, as the People's Daily quote there is, that China is observing international law in the true sense. What do we, what do we mean by that? Um, the, South, the South China Sea Islands, because were, were occupied both before and, and uh, during, world, during World War II. They were returned to China under the 1943 Cairo Declaration, the 1945 Proclamation. And China argues these treaties are important international legal instruments and form the bedrock of the post-war international order in East Asia. But of course, other, other states argue um, that, the, that the correct rules to follow are the 1951 San Francisco Peace Treaty, which of course China was not part of because it was part of the Communist bloc, and, and the 1951 San Francisco Peace Peace Treaty was really was really more about 
if you like, uh, the American-led world order uh, signing a peace treaty with uh, Japan. Um, and secondly, the uh, United Nations Law of the Sea. Now, China ratified the United Nations UNCLOS Agreement back in June 1996, but with a, with a well-defined reservation that said it reaffirmed its sovereignty over, over all of its archipelagos and islands as listed in Article 2 of the Law of the People's Republic of, of China. So China believes it should, it should follow the UNCLOS Treaty as it has agreed to, but not as other people think that it should. China thinks it should follow the, word, the words of the treaty. That's the argument made, anyway. Um, so there's an ar and arbitration process that is just about to reach, reach a decision shortly. But China thought about that years ago, and back in 2006 uh, made a, a declaration that it uh, excluded itself from the arbitration process, because the arbitration process in the UNCLOS was a compulsory dispute settlement process where you took it to an, an impartial umpire, if you like, and your, ter and your territorial dispute uh, was, was arbitrated on. But back in 2006, China lodged its declaration excluding it from that. The Chinese argument, of course, is that um, why, should, why should it be bound by the arbitration? Because 30 other UNCLOS signatories have also made similar declarations. Oh, and, and by the way, of course, Australia formally rejects um, the arbitration by the national... Court of Justice as well. Um, and China, as a great power and as a permanent member of the United Security, uh, the uh, United Nations Permanent Security Council, points out that of the members of the Security Council, three of the four other permanent members, as in the Brits, the French, and the Russians, have also excluded themselves from the from the arbitration. Mechanism. The Americans have not, but that's because they haven't ratified it anyway. So why should it be bound by rules that the that the other members of the Permanent Security Council uh, don't believe they should be bound by. And of course China now has advised that it will ignore any such verdict by the coming from The Hague, but of course that's what the Japanese are with the whaling as well. So China's argument sort of runs along the line of, as they say, they're acting in accordance with international law, un included. If you like, they're acting in accordance with international norms. So the last one there, of course, was the Declaration on the Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea. When China started to get a bit restive around the Scarborough Shoals back in, in the middle 1990s, ASEAN as an organisation decided that they would try and um, get in front of the game and, they, and they, would, they would have a conduct, what sort of, uh, a code of conduct, if you like. And China eventually came on board in 2002 and agreed to sign it. And, of course, in the code of conduct, it says that China will that all those that signed the treaty will solve their territorial disputes on a bilateral basis, not a multilateral basis. So ASEAN can't be a party to any of this because ASEAN's a multinational organisation. China will talk to people on an individual basis and vice versa, but no, but, and so China once again says you should follow the rules you have agreed to. So, so the answer to problems like this, you know, where the world's changing, China is rising, therefore as things are changing, the the idea would be, would be to make some new rules. And hence there's a code of conduct that people have been talking about since 2002 that ASEAN and China have been working steadily on. China is, of course, in no particular hurry to finish this the, or to agree with, with what ASEAN wants anyway, is what I should say. The, the Declaration on the Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea, the DOC, was uh, seen as a, as a confidence-building measure and was the first step, if you like, and the Code of Conduct was the second step. But the Code of Conduct was seen as, added as a 
preventative diplomacy measure and was seen to forestall conflict. And worse than that, one thing the states don't like, it was meant to be binding. So the kind of contact was or is very ambitious. And it's not surprising that China is stalling and that they'd rather not, frankly, do it. And they keep going back to the fact that the that the code of conduct is meant to be built upon the dock, and the dock specifically says ASEAN's not involved. Doesn't stop, of course, China arguing in certain uh, quarters that, of course, it signed the ASEAN-China agreement, therefore that's a great agreement and they want to go with it, but they're trying to play both ends against the middle. Now, there's the, there's the enforcement and, the, count and the, the counterbalancing argument there. As we've mentioned, counterbalancing before... Um, there's two terms which are sort of often which are sort of often used. The cabbage strategy, a good a good Chinese term, in that um, China again has been playing has been playing by the rules assiduously, and uh, when it if you like takes over and uh, a uh, disputed territory now, unlike 1974 and unlike 1988, it uses a carefully calibrated blend of naval, private, and commercial means that makes military force seem grossly inappropriate. In uh, 2013, a uh, PLA major, major general nicely sort of, sort of termed this a uh, cabbage strategy. We have a carefully timed sequence that first sends fishing boats to a disputed territory, then you send some fisheries patrol boats to look after and guard the Chinese fishing boats, then you send some coast guard ships to look after the fisheries patrol and the fishing boats, and then you send some naval ships to look after them all. So the island concerned is wrapped layer by layer like a cabbage, hence the term cabbage strategy. So ships of, ships of other nations are progressively denied access. Now this is done in a is implemented in a piecemeal, um, incremental fashion that gradually asserts Chinese sovereignty over a disputed area, and hence the name salami slicing, which is which is a West, which is a, a non-Chinese term, if you like. So each individual action is by itself sufficiently limited and too inconsequential to provoke a strong diplomatic pushback or a forceful military response. It gradually uh, accumulates and, and adds up to a, to a significant strategic change. And no one's worked out how to sort of overcome that, that sort of salami slicing and gradual, that gradual incremental change. Waging a war with, with China over these islands sounds really far, far-fetched. And giving China's um, economic importance to, the, to ASEAN, um, the cost would be just sort of too high and the returns far too low. Some people argue that merchant shipping goes, goes through the South, the South China Sea, and that's an issue, but most of that merchant shipping is either Chinese ships or ships heading towards China anyway. And the Chinese, the way that that cabbage strategy works, there's a great deal of attention clearly paid to making sure that China as a state actor doesn't fire first, if you like. I, I think if you ever see anybody um, actually uh, use armed violence, it will not be the Chinese that fire first at least not the Chinese state, anyway. Um, and lastly, the rules-based order. Um, it's good, obviously, China has been able to use the rules-based order to its own advantage, if you like. Um, it, it has influenced how it's approached the problem. But it's a good thing from the Chinese Communist Party point of view because it does reinforce the party-state. Um, a rules-based order, after all, takes a rather state-centric view of the world and you privilege the state. It's an interstate A agreement. So you de deliberately overlook society. It reinforces the party's importance. It reinforces the elites of the, of the party states as well and their importance. They're the key decision makers and they become the gatekeepers between Chinese society and the wider world. So you're entrenching the party's influence, promoting political rigidity, avoiding meaningful change 
and you're helping strengthen the grip of the party on the China. So all these things are good. And you can see there a bit of the, um, that dichotomy that, that people talk about, uh, the use of law within China, the rule of law or the rule by law, and to a certain extent this is an extension of a rule by law, if you like, almost. That's a bit of an extension, but nonetheless. See, China's, China's doing a first-class job there of, being, of playing by rules-based orders, so I have no idea what the, Department, what the Secretary of the Department of Defence was concerned about. Is there a better order? Right. We finished off there talking about um, a rules-based order being somewhat a state-centric order. Well, the world is not necessarily completely state-centric anymore. Um, a rules-based order tends to, um, be, tends to sort of think of the world as thin linkages between states for self-interested policy coordination and consensual AI agreements. But the present international system consists of, think of thick link linkages connecting all parts of a society, including the social, political, economic, cultural, military, etc., with a diverse array of, of external others. Um, states are no longer a, a monolithic um, entity, if you like, but are rather fragmented, decentralised and internationalised. And what's more, most most, the states of most countries want to make their countries more open to the world, generally speaking, to be part of large-scale global supply chains and enmeshed in the globalised world's interdependent economic networks. So the world is not necessarily the world that a, state, that, that a rules-based order was originally, was, was originally thought about. It's a bit different from that. So... Uh, um, another, uh, another option or another kind of order that might be that uh, might be that might be worth a look at is a complex in complex interdependency. To uh, to return back to keep to Kiowain and Nye's idea back there in the 1970s and the early 1980s. Now the most important thing is that it has there is no well the adjective there is it, it starts it starts with a C not an E. Interdependence always gets tied up with economic interdependence, and people start talking about the British selling herrings to the Germans before World War One. But what we're talking about here is something quite different. We're talking about complex interdependence. Um, they're the, the various elements of it, as I'm sure that you're all experts on: multiple formal and informal channels connecting societies, relationships consisting of multiple issues, non-dominating, rule out military force, and the entities have a, a cooperative arrangement. But how they're achieving their, their aims, if you like, is through um, um, impacting and manipulating their, asymmet their asymmetrical interdependencies. Their um, states are sensitive and vulnerable to particular range of, of, of issues and, uh, and, and matters. So other people can, can use those sensitivities and vulnerabilities to achieve their, their particular aims. So you bargain through uh, through through impacting people's sensitivities and vulnerabilities, and in particular linkages. So you might agree that that you'll that you'll do something as long as the as long as the other part uh, as long as the other party agrees to do to do to do something else. But it's a a, a cooperative arrangement. Couple of couple of couple of points about that. So a subset of a rules-based order. Now we don't. Um, in complex interdependence, um, a rules-based order is not, is not tossed out the door. You, you'll recall right at the start that we spoke about um, needing a rules-based order for the global, uh, global economic and financial system. And when you think about uh, the World Trade Organization, um, that particular rules-based construct there is obviously very necessary for the, for the modern, modern globalised system. Without it, 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 would, it, it would have grave difficulty functioning. But a complex interdependence uh, order is, is, if you like, um, I wouldn't say superior because that implies a normative value, but, it, but, it, but 
but but is perhaps more of an extension of, of a rules-based order. Rules-based order would, would, would then be subsumed within a complex interdependence order or a, a, a subset of it. For instance, the classic example is China. Um, China came out of exile and in the 1980s steadily became a part of the rules-based order. For example, signing the UNCLOS treaty there about, about the law of the sea in the 1982 and ratifying it in the 1996. Then when it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, it got more and more integrated into the global system, and President Xi at the present time has placed um, some emphasis upon deepening the interdependence between China and the external world as central to his China dream about making China a, a, a more uh, prosperous and uh, well-connected country. Now, China, as we all know, is well integrated with the world. Um, there's a lot of, of interdependencies between China um, and, and the external world. But nonetheless, um, it's long been resistant to being completely, com completely open. It's probably fair to say that it's no longer a, West, a Westphalian ideal state, if you like, to go back to our ideas about a state-centred rules-based rules -based order. But at least at this particular part, in, in the assigned curve, um, the Chinese government slash party are trying to, if you like, make things, make things more uh, difficult again and restrict access between Chinese so, so, so society and the external world. And there's a whole pile of, um, of, of things going on at the present time as far as uh, the relationship between the Chinese NGOs um, and external NGOs and um, uh, foreign, foreign, foreign media uh, sources um, uh, broadcasting in into China, etc., etc., etc. And of course, we had three days ago uh, National Security Education Day uh, to teach the Chinese people to make sure to be careful of foreigners because they're all agents of foreign of uh, of the foreign governments. So while China is, may not be a, Westphali a Westphalian ideal state, as in cut off from the rest of the world, it, um, there are some particular issues there. It is not as 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 say uh, as. Uh, as open, perhaps, as it, as it, uh, as it say, was uh, a decade ago, or as sort of other countries are at the present time. So there's still some issues there about whether it's completely open to the world like that. That's what we talk about, about form, I suppose, about uh, whether a complex interdependence order would work with uh, China in this, in this particular case. There's also the issue of uh, content. Um, now, in a, in a complex interdependence order, um, it's an issue, an issue structural order, if you like. Um, that those that the contents modulated to fit these specific issues being addressed. Um, so while you can fine tune each particular issue uh, better than say balancing, which tends to be a bit of a, a, um, a blunt instrument, you, know, you 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 build up your relative your relative military force versus their military force. It's fairly it's a fairly blunt instrument as far as signalling and solving issues. Um, you can fine tune an issue structural approach better perhaps or, or more easily. Um, if you're going to purpose, purposefully exploit Chinese sensitivities and vulnerabilities, that would irritate uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the state quite a lot. Um, and in particular, if you start making linkages. But that's how a complex interdependence order works. It makes linkages. And while a cooperative order, um, its, its operation involves some contention and some disagreements. Let's just just take that a little bit a little bit further and in the case of the South China Sea just just to give you a couple of, of examples um, the, the China's activities in the South China Sea is pretty is fairly ambitious they'd like to claim 80 or 90 percent of it so that's that's you know then they're, they're not China's not claiming 100 percent but it's still it's still pretty ambitious 
So to have an influence upon what, what they did next, um, you, you might want to impose costs of a type and a magnitude adequate to influence Chinese policymakers. There's, there's a whole pile of cost imposition uh, approaches out there. There's, a, there's, there's one that that uh, suggests itself is, is firstly pressure on issues the Chinese Communist Party is particularly sensitive about. And they're obviously concerned, like all governments, with their regime survival. Just ask Malcolm Turnbull. Um, but they're concerned about popular legitimacy. But, and so there's, there's, there's a bit of re-oppression re that also go, goes on to ensure the survival of the party. So, and as you know, there's lots of uh, ways that the party chops off um, access to the outside world through the, uh, the, the Great Firewall and all that sort of stuff. So external parties could exploit many pressure points, including meeting the, Dala the Dalai Lama, shock horror, discussing human rights, actively supporting a free press, assisting open internet access, or vigorously mar marketing China's true history. Strategies using that could be relatively subtle, tightly focused, and carefully controlled. Uh, unlike, I would say, balancing, as in building up military forces, because that could look... You can enter a security dilemma relatively easily. If you're making a linkage between something like that and the South and the South China Sea, that sounds pretty ambitious and difficult as well. But of course, the past masters of making linkages like this is of course China. Because they've, they, they've proven quite adept at using, at, at using linkage strategies like this previously. There's quite a good uh, analysis by uh, Krista Weingart that she looked at, uh, at Chinese pressure on the San, the San Daku Islands, that, that, uh, the, the Japanese islands that, that uh, China claims, between 1978 and uh, 2008. And uh, China was able to um, link issues 20, uh, 26 times successfully across those, those, those 30 years, gaining numerous concessions. Not, nothing to do about the islands themselves. The islands were just a nice, vulnerable, sensitive point that you could act, that, that, that you could, uh, could, could apply pressure to the Japanese, because the Japanese were, very, are, were and are very sensitive about it. So that was an issue that, that uh, China was able to exploit using linkage strategies, if you like. A second way of doing it is, is, to, uh, is to constrain China's future freedom of action rather than uh, you know, being, being nasty, if you like, and, and having an aggressive posture. You simply accept what Foreign Minister Wang said. China stands ready to open these facilities in the South China Sea to other countries upon completion. So a very public diplomatic effort could be mounted at the UN to place UN people or, or ASEAN facilities and personnel onto the islands as well. Accept the offer very publicly and keep pushing, and keep pushing people. So it's a linkage approach there, as it says, by multiple, you know, by you could use your multiple formal and informal channels, relationships, and ruling out the threats of uh, military force. So there's a difference there between rules-based order. At the present time, the rules-based order is being well exploited by uh, by uh, China, um, and people don't seem completely happy about that. As China, uh, if but if you start using a complex inter interdependence order and you use linkage strategies like this you'll probably irritate the, the Chinese state as well. So you will, um, there will be costs imposed that may not be worth the possible, the possible outcomes. So maybe rules-based order is better because it doesn't work. And therefore, it's, it's cheap from our from outsider's viewpoint. So an ineffectual order might be better than an effectual order, perhaps. The problem with that is that you want to be careful um, that, you do, that people don't learn, don't learn the wrong lesson, I suppose. If uh, Chinese policymakers believe that this cabbage strategy, salami slicing, use of the rules-based order, is how, you, is, is how you impose your will upon the world, then this might not be the only time that they apply it. The, South, the uh, South China Sea might not be unique. This might be just a, um, a large test bed, if you like, 
uh, for trying such a, such a process on elsewhere. Right, I think I, I think I might finish there. So I'm um, so well. There we go. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.